So on Friday was St. Patrick's Day. Uh, is there really anyone who is super stoked about that? I mean, is anyone here like, that's my day, that's my holiday, that's the one? Not really. I don't, I don't think so. Um, we do know a couple things. I mean, you probably know a couple things about the man, St. Patrick, um, but probably not much. Um, his favorite color was probably green, right? Uh, you might have heard that he used the clover to explain the Trinity, uh, hopefully three leaf and not four, uh, or else he would be a heretic. Maybe you've heard that he used a flute to cast out snakes from Ireland. I mean, that, that's my kind of guy. We need that here in Texas, right? <laughs> like, come on. Uh, unfortunately, all of those things are false. Uh, not, not true of, of Mr. Patrick, but an overview of his life. I think by God's providence, uh, we are in this passage in Ephesians this week because his life uh, illuminates and displays some of these truths for us. So he was born in Britain. He grew up in the church, uh, but didn't take it super seriously. At the age of 16, he was taken captive by raiders and brought to Ireland. He was a slave there for six years. And during that time, he started to pray to God. And it grew to the point that he said he would pray a hundred times a day and not much less a night. After six years, he escaped and he in time returned home. But it wasn't long before Patrick said that he was having dreams of the Irish people calling out to him, calling out to him and begging him to come back and preach the gospel to them. You see, Ireland at that time was not the romanticized land that it is now. It was largely pagan. The church had not sent people there. In fact, they despised it. They didn't think it was worth evangelizing. They thought, leave them to their own demise. Yet Patrick did not listen to this. And despite this, he went. Despite the fact that he was uneducated, that he really wasn't equipped, he felt this call and was compelled to go. And so he went. He had opposition from both the church and the world. However, through his efforts, Ireland began to be evangelized. People were saved. Churches were built. His life and his example encouraged others to do the same, to leave their homeland and to go, to preach the gospel with boldness to those who don't know. Using the words of Paul, he referred to himself as the least of all the saints, unlearned, uneducated, unworthy. But he took the simple truths of the gospel. He preached them. The church was built. The body gained boldness and was sent out. And in that, in his life, we really see what Paul is trying to emphasize here in Ephesians 3. 
He's just unveiled the mystery of the gospel for us. The Gentiles grafted in to the body. This is our life. This is our salvation. This glorious truth we heard about last week. Yet where do we go from there? Does that, is that where it stops? What does that move us towards? So before going on, Paul stops here briefly in Paul fashion with two very long sentences. And he gives us some implications of what this mystery means for us. And he does so by using his own life as an example. So turn with me to Ephesians 1. I mean 3, verse 1. We're not going back to the start. I did get the right passage, right? We're in Ephesians. No. Ephesians 3, verse 1. It says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops. For what reason? Again, Gentiles, we are far off, brought near, one body, one spirit, hostile, no longer. The veil is torn. Paul is building to something, and then he breaks. Now, if you look at verse 14 of chapter 3, you'll see he picks up with the same words. For this reason, I bow my knees. So in between these two, verse 1 and verse 14, there's this whole section where Paul maybe loses sidetrack a little bit, it might seem. But what he is actually doing is really emphasizing this point. He didn't want to move on quite yet, so he's going to really dig in and show why this is so important. He does so again by using his own life as an example for us. And, and through this, there's four conclusions to the mystery that we're going to look at today. What does this mean? So let's continue. Verse 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he breaks off first to make us understand this point. Everything that he has just said, this building up, we are grafted in. He wants you to know that he is speaking with the authority of God. And he uses his own life and story to show this. We know Paul's story, don't we? It precedes him. People knew it. He wrote about it. In it, there was zero ability for Paul to take any credit. God miraculously revealed himself to him through light. A voice spoke. Paul was blinded and then saved. What can he boast in in that? Nothing. It was given to him. He wants his readers to understand this. Don't take his word for it. Take God's. This is God's word. 
He was made a minister of a church and a people he didn't want to minister to. He was given a message he didn't want to believe in. But God gave it to him. He didn't conjure it up. He didn't decipher it. He didn't twist the scriptures to come to this conclusion. God opened his eyes by closing them, and he was saved out of the depths of his sin to a new and glorious life. These are the very words of God. And there were other apostles, apostles, who wanted to discredit Paul and say that his message was not of God, but he is solidifying that, no, it is. These are not my words. He speaks with authority. What he's saying is that your salvation is sure. There's no reason to doubt it. But this isn't new. It sounded new, but it wasn't. And, and he wants you to realize that as well. He says, it, is, it has not been made known to the sons in other generations as it has now been. The key word there is as. It was made known, but not as clearly as it is now. And we see this throughout all of scripture. Back in Genesis, Abraham, I will bless you and I'll bless all the families of the earth through you. You will be a blessing. And then come all the way forward from that to Galatians 3, 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles all the way back in Genesis by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among with along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is not a new Gospel, this is not a new message. It is the same authoritative truths of Scripture that have been given for all time. Last week, Pastor Seth talked about the way that we can kind of theologically reason people out of the church or out of salvation. But what Paul is saying is that if you are believing on Jesus Christ— you are eternally in the household of God. And no one can take that, that from you. The mystery made clear, that is your basis. The mystery of the gospel means that we are saved with divine authority. We are saved with divine authority. Not Paul's authority. Not a pastor's authority. Not your own authority. But God's. Separated from God, you have no right to life. You have no right to your salvation. We were hypocrites. We were sinners. I mean, you and I have failed even this day. We are unders undeserving of our salvation this morning. 
undeserving of coming here and worshiping our God. You've probably felt the guilt and the shame of that in your life, of that sin. Wonder why you would do something that you hate, that God hates over and over again. Wondered why you are caught up in sin. Wonder why you would yell at your kids or cheat on your taxes or whatever it may be. You've probably felt that, and yet you do. Maybe it's even made you question your salvation at times. Paul is saying your salvation is not your own. Back in chapter 1, even as he chose you, chose us in him before the foundations of the world, you have been bought with a price out of sin, out of darkness, before the foundations of the world, chosen and brought in. Like Paul, saved by a message you rejected. Saved by a savior you rejected. Saved to a people you don't belong. To a body you weren't a part of. To a family you weren't born into. You were given an inheritance you don't deserve. You could never earn it, but praise God, he did it for you. And praise God that it is on his divine authority that it is sealed. It is not yours to lose because it's not based on you. You see, Paul is speaking from prison here. If you were to listen to anyone giving life advice, it would probably not first come from someone in prison currently, right? I mean, that's not where we're going. But when he spoke, people listened and hearts were changed. Why? Because they weren't his words. It was the gospel and power and purpose of God. We see that in in St. Patrick's life. He didn't have the degrees to speak with any kind of authority. In fact, before he went, the church told him not to because who was he? I mean, he was a nobody. He didn't learn under some theologian. Yet he decided to dedicate himself to the simple truths of Scripture. He preached that, and the gospel went out with power and conviction. We also live in a world with a lack of authority. They tell us we have no right to say what is wrong. No right to say who needs to change. When we too live in sin, right? Maybe you've been called a hypocrite. Don't push your religion on somebody. But the words of the Bible are authoritative. All of it, completely, no degrees or level. So we stick to the Bible and we preach Christ crucified. We don't need to get caught up in exactly how we present the gospel to a specific culture and people and our specific neighbor. And those are good things to think about and consider. But 
We don't end up watering down and catering the message. We stick to the simple truths of Scripture. Because no matter how hard we try to get it right, we can't replace these plain truths. We can't fake it. We can't preach with enough conviction or love. We can't live earnestly enough to do it on our own. We can never replace the power of the gospel purely from scripture. It takes weightiness off of us. This is our authority. First Corinthians, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The words of God that saved you, brought you out of darkness, the mystery that adopted you as divine authority. And like many Jews, people may not like that. But stick to it. Don't change it. People can reject the message. We once rejected the message. But it's not you they're rejecting because it's not your message. My older brother, Tanner, is a deputy in Montana. And that still weirds me out because he's like my brother I hang out and joke with. And then he has like the super serious job. And it's weird. Um, but the day he was sworn in, he was given authority. The day before that, he did not have it. If he tried to pull someone over previously and tell them that, you know, hey, you're speeding. I'm going to give you a ticket. He had no authority to do that. But the very day after he was sworn in, suddenly this authority and right was bestowed upon him. Suddenly now this is his responsibility. And people may get upset. Maybe you have, I have at times, been upset with being pulled over, getting a ticket. But truly, you're not upset at that person. You're upset with the authority. We've been given an authority in Christ Jesus. And what this means, Paul makes clear here, is that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul isn't listing three things that you have gained, just three off of a longer list for the Jews. This is complete holistic grafting in. You are one with them now. No distinction. All the same inheritance and promises. Given the same community blessing. So what then... What then do we do with this authoritative gospel handed down to us? What do we do with it? We go on. Verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
What this means is that we are now to be stewards of the gospel. We have been, like Paul, saved, given this authoritative message, and now there is a real implication to that. We are to steward it well. That's what he says he has been called to in verse 1. That he was, or in verse 2, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. What does that mean? That he was made a minister to bring forth the gospel for a people. Stewardship, it's a management of, an oversight, an administration of. So how do we steward it? Paul is our example, once again, taking the gospel into the world. While he had this appointment of unveiling this mystery fully for people, we now have the responsibility of carrying it along, don't we? It means to manage it well, to look after it, to not hoard it, but to see its growth, to not hide it, but to promote it. Bring it to fruition. Stewarding means preaching. We may not, again, have a very specific calling like Paul. But listen to what he says he was made a minister to do. He says, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What does this sound like? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the gospel and bring people out of darkness into light. This is real, knowable, tangible truth for all people. Paul dedicated his life to this, to preach to the Gentiles. And we are an inheritance of that. And now... We've been called to do the same. This task was given now to us. It was his aim in life. He loved these people. He wanted to see them be saved. We, say, we see that in Patrick's life. He loved the people of Ireland. He wanted to see them be saved. So what did he do? He stewarded the knowledge that he had, even if it wasn't a lot. He stewarded the knowledge he had, and he trusted God to do the rest. When Paul says he is the least of all the apostles, that isn't false humility. In a lot of ways, he was. He persecuted the church. He was late to come to the church. He says he wasn't a great speaker, but a pretty good writer. So our call, again, may not be as big and specific as maybe someone like Paul, but take what God has given you and tend to it. Press into it. This reminds me of gardening. It's spring here in Texas, and I think it's time to plant your gardens. I don't know how that works in Texas. It seems like it's too hot here in the summer. Maybe you plant in the winter. I don't know. But what do you do? You plant a seed, you tend to it 
you protect it, you water it, and in time it produces. One seed doesn't produce just one fruit. It produces many. You harvest tenfold and hundredfold what you put in the ground. And that's the example and the call that we are given in Scripture. We see parables of this, of taking what you have and turning a profit on it. In Matthew 25, it talks about, Jesus tells a parable about a uh, master who gives a servant five talents, and he comes back with five more. And then another servant, two talents, and he comes back with two more, doubled what they were given. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the third, the third servant, he gives one talent to. And what does he do? He hides it. He buries it. And then later he returns and he brings the one back. And what does the master say to him? You wicked and slothful servant. And then again in Matthew 13, Jesus tells of the seed falling on different grounds. He says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then he explains in verse 23 what this means. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. That is us. We have heard the word. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, understood it, given salvation. Now what? He then produced. He indeed gain, bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. What these parables reveal for us is that stewarding, stewarding the gospel is tangible. It's not just theoretical. It's not just theological. It is dirty, getting your hands in it and doing it, taking action, effort. When asked, we should be able to look at our lives and, and say, this is what I'm doing with the riches of Christ given to me. This is how I am using them. We may not all produce a hundredfold, but we will produce something. We must produce something. Paul knew the task set before him. What is the task set before you? Consider. What has God set before you? Is it a people? Is it a place, a community, this church, your household, job, neighbor? He has placed you in circles. What has he set before you? You can start small and build from there. Be practical about it. We don't go from a seed to a tree overnight. But when that is planted, it does grow. So where are we growing? Where are we producing gospel fruit in our lives? It should be producing fruit in our homes through discipleship of our spouses, of our kids, of having a home that's open and hospitable to the world. It should be producing fruit in your work in the way you interact, in your integrity with others, in your finances. How is your money speaking and preaching the truths of the gospel and his kingdom? 
in the way we manage our time? Is it honoring to God? Does it give room for us to do these things? To steward the gospel, we must live it out. We must share it. It must produce. You can't profit. You can't grow something that you simply hide deep in your heart and not let out. Nothing can produce tenfold or a hundredfold if it is kept inside a box and not spread. It has to be nurtured. It has to be grown. It has to be watered and fed in your own life first and then go out from there. Paul was given this message. He took it and he preached it to a people. It wasn't about how great Paul was, but about how great God is, the unsearchable riches. He had to preach the good news. And again, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different stories. We all have different levels of knowledge and sanctification. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we all have in common the mission of bringing to to light for everyone the mystery of the gospel. That there is salvation found in Christ. The unsearchable riches. Unsearchable doesn't mean that it's unknowable. The depths of his wisdom and grace are deeper than can ever be uncovered. It's like if you were trying to find the bottom of the ocean. You'll never find it, but that doesn't mean you aren't in it. It doesn't mean you aren't discovering more and more about it. It's unsearchable yet personal, close, knowable. It never grows old. It never gets mundane. Just like Pastor Seth talked about with communion. We need this weekly because it doesn't grow old. And if it does, there's something wrong with us, not the message. Because we need this message every day, every minute. It's bigger than Paul. It's bigger than Patrick. It's bigger than you and I. We can't individually reach all of the people. But as the church is built, we are sent out to participate in the work that Paul started. There are still yet people who need to know this gospel message. And if not us, then who? So we are handed the stewardship now of taking it forward. But to what end? What impact can you have in your life? I think that's a valid question. Maybe you'll see a few people be saved or a few people hear the truth. It doesn't always feel and look like it's making a huge impact, but you have been placed in this church. You've been saved and given purpose of bringing this eternal plan to completion. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 10. Read with me. So that through the church, this is the result. 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Look back at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Same idea. What God has started, what God has started in the cosmos, arranging, ordering, stewarding things to implement his will. Paul is placing himself and us within that divine, eternal plan. We are a part of that. It's much bigger than us. He has given us a place in this plan and a responsibility in it. One that is connected to the ordering of the universe. You see, the day-to-day leads to the eternal and heavenly through the mystery of the gospel coming to us, through us preaching it, we are participating in displaying the cosmic wisdom of God. The individual leads to the community. The earthly leads to the heavenly. The daily leads to the eternal. We preach the good news of the gospel. And through so doing, the church is built and the wisdom of God is made known to all creation. That is what we are a part of here. Think about that. As we're building the church, as we're building this church here, this is the clearest display of the wisdom of God, Paul says. The clearest display of it. By bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, his wisdom is seen. So we live it out. We steward it well. And we are part of God's eternal plan. How marvelous is that? That this is, I mean, this is it. This is God's plan. This is his wisdom. That even this, the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, the angels and the demons could not conceive of it and are in awe of it. They dwell with God, yet they look to the church to learn of him. I mean, I think we often think of them as having all of this wisdom because they're with God. Yet, God says, look at the church. Look at what I have built. Look at what I am building through these people. Your salvation teaches creation, teaches the angels about God. That is the unsearchable riches of Christ in you, for you, through you. That is what we get to be a part of as we take the gospel into the world and preach it. And I think we can sometimes be narrow-focused and not see the importance and the magnitude of our own lives and of our own salvation. We can live with our heads down and not see that your salvation is not for you. 
is for all of creation to see the goodness of God and what he has done, taken a broken sinner and made them new. There's big purpose there. And that big purpose takes a big vision of what God is doing in this world. We are the means by which God gets the most glory and displays his greatest wisdom. This is it. We're it. So praise God that he has chosen to shed his grace on you, that he has saved you, that he is displaying his glory through you. And then evaluate your life. What, what has that moved you towards? We know what it's done in you, your salvation, but what is that now doing? Do we feel the weightiness of this? Paul had this vision for the church. What God is doing here has meaning and worth outside of these walls, outside of this church, outside of this city, outside of this world. And, you know, no one may ever hear of this, of this little church in Magnolia, Texas. We may never make the headlines. But the worth of what we are doing is greater than anything we will ever perceive. Creation knows of it. The angels know of it. And hopefully your neighbors know of it. We are joining God and uniting all things to himself by proclaiming the gospel to all people, displaying his wisdom, his truth, and his glory for all creation. There's big purpose there. There's a big vision there. So we need to sit in that and take awe at it. Let that excite you and motivate you to press on. But in order to not get lost in the magnitude of what that means, Paul refocuses us. He brings us back in. Verse 11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is... Your glory. See, Paul takes us full circle here. He goes back, he points back to verse one. He is in prison. He summarizes what all of this means, the result and what it produces in us today. We trust in and we're saved by this authoritative gospel. We steward that gospel well in the world. We preach it to a dying world. The church is built and all creation declares the glory of God. What does that do? What does it mean for us? What does it produce in us? When we step back and we view that and we see all that God is doing, we turn our eyes to him and we live in light of the victory won. We don't get caught up in the details How is Paul saying this while currently in prison? I mean, why is he saying this while currently in prison? 
Look at what he says back in verse 1. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He is a prisoner of Christ, for Christ. Not of Caesar, but Christ. The sovereignty of God is holding them in prison. Not the guards, not Caesar, not the authority. It is God. He sees that even his biggest suffering is from the hand of God for the Gentiles. Nothing is outside of his control. It's learning to be content in all situations in light of the victory won. This is a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God, of the providence of God. A vision for what he is doing. It brings peace amidst adversity. Christ is seated on the throne. At the end of the day, that is true. Christ is seated on the throne and no one can dethrone him. So he says this gives us confidence. Gives us confidence in our salvation again because we can come before God due to the mystery revealed. We have communion with Christ. Our salvation, it says, is realized in Christ Jesus here and now. We're not waiting for it to be realized one day when we die. It is realized and sure now today. You have it if you believe in him. You have been bought. So you don't worry about losing it tomorrow. We have confidence in his promises, not our actions. We are heirs, members, and partakers. Confidence. And that confidence gives us boldness. Boldness to preach in this world. When we face suffering, when we face maybe persecution, we have boldness. Paul says that that is actually a glory for you. That suffering for Christ is glorious. It's beautiful. That he would see you as worthy of that. So what are we losing heart over today? What causes you to not trust or believe? What causes you to fear now, you're probably not facing prison like Paul was, but you are attempting to navigate this world that seems to be increasingly opposed to everything you are as a believer. Simple truths seem like an uphill battle. Maybe it's as simple as you're struggling with finances to pay your bills, struggling to find purpose and meaning, struggling to see what impact you're having don't lose heart. The greatest battle has been fought and has been won. We rest in that truth. We find boldness in that and we find perseverance in that. See, we don't have to win a war in this world. The war has been won. We simply have to show the world that it's over, that the arms are laid down, that Christ is victorious. We live in light of that victory. Paul could have easily seen his plot in life, the persecutions, the imprisonment, all of it, and given up in despair. If anyone had a right to, it was likely him. 
Yet he didn't. Instead, he looked up and saw Christ. He saw the goodness of his Savior in light of it all. So instead of looking down at our circumstances in life, look up and see Christ seated on the throne. Don't lose heart. See the glory. See the joy set before us that we get to be sent out as ambassadors of this good and glorious king. What a privilege that is for us. It all points back to Christ, our salvation, our message, the building of the church, being sent out, even the hardships and the struggles. It turns our eyes, it turns our hearts to Christ. The victory is won. We live in light of that. St. Patrick knew this truth amidst slavery and persecution. Instead of despairing, he turned his eyes to Christ. He turned his heart to prayer. Listen to his heart and see his life desire through these words that he prayed. We have written, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. And Christ in every ear that hears me. That is our due response to the mystery of the gospel. Christ in everything. Everything for Christ. Let's pray.